How's it sound for you? It sounds sounds very good on my end. How do you sound, or how do I sound to you, rather? You you sound an awful lot like Sarah, so it's going to be okay. All right, sounds good. <laughs> so I want to make sure I pronounce your your name right because I'm going to introduce you. So so make sure you say your name one more time for me because I want to make sure it's correct. It's Sarah Barsness. Barsness, because I want to say something different every time, and you know that. A lot. Well, and a lot of people turn the first S into a Z. They say Barsness. That's exactly it's fine. It doesn't matter. How is your uh, How is your lovely husband? Oh, he's doing well. He's stuck at work today, but uh, he has the next two days off. So, and I took them off as well. So we're going to have our vacation or our weekend on Monday and Tuesday. Well, that's fantastic. So, well, thank you for spending not only your day off, <laughs> but <laughs> a piece of your Valentine's Day with me. It makes me feel yeah. like I'm in some small way that I'm your sweetheart. Thank you so Aww. much. Yeah. <laughs> So, how about this? How about welcome to the fencing grounds? I'm Chris Van Slambrock, and I'm always, every day, hustling. I mean, living by her. And this is a podcast where we have a cup of coffee, and we talk about nerd stuff. I mean, fencing history. And I'm here today with Sarah. Sarah Barsness. And I am an archivist as a profession. And I'm a fencer as one of my many hobbies. Um, and what I think we as HEMA, as historical fencers, are doing a special kind of history, a new kind of history. I work every day with historical researchers from middle school to retirees. And almost all of them are doing really traditional textual research, researching their family history or a famous person or a historical event. And what we do, especially when we study Meyer, is a really deep, intensive analysis and interpretation of a text oh, yes. in a way that I don't see a lot of other historians doing. So I'm really excited about Hema, both as a person who's just like, dang, swords are cool, <laughs> but also as a person who is interested in history and historiography, oh, how yes. the work of history is done. An archivist. Oh, man, that's exciting. T tell, me, tell me why you decided to be an archivist. Or like, what path led you to that? Was it pure love of history? Like you just may had to mainline it into your arm or what? <laughs> uh, pretty close, yeah. So in college, I majored in German and in anthropology. I was a double major. My work in anthropology was cultural anthropology. And specifically, I looked at things a lot through a historical lens because I'm really interested in how the things that came before echo into today and repeat themselves in kind of remix sort of ways, right? Yeah. And I... Well, we're living to it. Well, we're, excuse me, we're living through it right now. Exactly. And so today, when we talk about Confederate monuments, right, we're also talking about the creation of those Confederate monuments. And we're talking about the Civil War itself and how each of those things echo into today. That's the kind of work I was doing as an undergrad. 
I graduated with my bachelor's degrees in 2008, uh, which if some of you were not around or don't remember, was a really terrible time to have a liberal arts degree. So I was a barista for a couple of years and uh, that was not my jam. Well, was that was that the year I lost like half my retirement or something? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, I, I, t- I tend to remember that as a negative. Yep, it was really not a great time to have very few employable job skills. So I started looking at graduate and PhD programs and I found library school, library and information sciences um, graduate programs across the country. And I thought, you know what, this might be for me. And then I saw archiving as a specialty in a lot of those schools and went, dang, that, that's it. That's the one. I want to work with historical documents and researchers and historians and be part of the process of creating history and memory. So you just went right to the most nerdiest of nerdy history things you could possibly find as soon as you touched upon it. I love it. I love it. I love it. So what was like the hardest thing for you going, going to university, double major? Mm -hmm. What was the hardest thing? What was the, the darn hardest thing? Was it just getting up and doing it? Was it being motivated? I mean, what's the real deal? What's, what's, what makes you tick there, Sarah? Tell me. So I'm one of those weirdos that just absolutely loves school and learning. Um, that's really where I shine. And the thing that I really loved about my time in college and especially graduate school is that they ditch the busy work. I'm going to, I'm going to push us a couple more years into, into your, your personal hero's journey. So after the conflict point of university in the first act of your story, you know, what, what, what's another benchmark? I want to know about fencing. That's what, that's what, that's what I care about. Tell me about yeah. fencing. Come on. So I've done martial arts stuff oh. off and on since middle school. I've always really enjoyed it. So well, I, 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 I am remiss. I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't ask the right question. The real question I want to ask is, what's your martial arts journey yeah. from, from youth onwards? Now that I know you're, you're kind of smart, you got some credibility, you're a fencer, all the important bases are covered. Now, now, now tell me about your martial arts journey. Well, so, you know, it's it was very casual uh, from about middle school onward. I would do like community education courses. I think I took some jujitsu. I took a, you know, sort of mixed martial arts self-defense course for women, you know, as you do. But that got me into karate and I did karate for a few years. I think I got up to a green belt. Do you recall uh, before the, I went to college? Do you recall the school? What what was your uh, what was your school? Of uh, karate. I Honestly, I don't remember. It was mall karate. Mall so karate. That's the one. Super authentic. Yeah, super. Very traditional. Very traditional yes. American mall style karate. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, and then after college, I was kind of looking for, after graduate school especially, I was looking for a way to get back into being more physically active. Right on. Um, I should also mention, because I think it's related, in graduate school I did a lot of dance, especially belly dance. Um, there was a belly dance club at college, and 
those things are, I think, deeply related because they're all about understanding what your body is doing in space and time in relation to what other people are doing. So after graduate school, I was looking for a way to keep active and I found this guy named Scott on the internet and was like, that doesn't seem shady. I'll go meet Scott in a park and play with swords. So, so wait a minute now. And some, now this is where I'll break the fourth wall and let the listener know that she's talking about Scott McDonald up in Minnesota. He's part of the Meyer Fry Factory Guild. And what about your, your running across his information made it feel not creepy? And that means to be like, what did you run across that felt creepy? So what the heck does that mean? That was loaded. <laughs> that was loaded. Well, it's a it's sort of a weird proposition to say to like a woman on the internet, you know, especially on Facebook, like, "Hey, I got swords. Want to come meet me someplace?" Uh, <laughs> right. That's, <laughs> that's like a lead into getting murdered. Is what yeah, that is. Yeah, that's like you've seen. You're like, I've seen this movie. This is this is yeah. the one where I get chopped up into little bits and put into you know a box somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he was posting in a group where I knew people and I trusted people and it was a public post. Lots of people were interacting with it and I could drag my husband along. Uh, it's funny, I'm the party face, but he is about a foot and a half taller than me. So he hides behind me, but I brought him his muscle. And... Uh, well, you it know, muscle and emotional support. But if you don't know yes. out there, we'll, we might as well say he—he is a—he is a literal giant. He is—he is a mountain of a man, a manly man. He's how tall is how tall is your husband? Oh my gosh, I think he's uh, six four. Tall to me, I guess. Uh, you know, maybe he—he he has a lot of physical presence. He's a big guy, especially compared to me. So I'm five four. Yeah. Well, so when we stand anyway, next he, to each other, he looks like a giant. Outstanding. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to derail you, but I wanted to talk positive about your honey. It is, after all, Valentine's Day. Yeah. Well, and actually, it's complete side tangent, but sure. appropriate to the discussion of Valentine's Day and swords, I really love fencing with my husband. I think it's really great for our relationship. Because you can't fight somebody with swords and not trust them. And if you're going to do it right, you have to know them deeply and communicate often um, and earn that trust over and over again with each other. So, like, it's a great thing to do with your romantic partner if that's your jam. Well, I think it's, uh, I think that is an accurate assessment of couples and couples therapy related to swords. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Absolutely. I think you want to, you really want to deal with some issues, you know, go ahead and go outside and fence or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, don't bring, don't bring the anger to it, right? You can be angry mm -hmm. at each other and you can fence, but you can't fence each other angry. Yes. If that makes sense. I think the, can, I think, you know, we're going to assume that the listener uh, is smart. All right. So you graduate university. Mm -hmm. You are into this very this is a subject matter that I need to do more research on, which is the correlation between uh, physical culture type fencing sports and belly dancing. Mm -hmm. um, and you wanted to get back to be more physical, so you contacted Scott, 
and then what? That's awesome. What were you reading at the time? I mean, this is when you started getting into historical fencing. Um, all throughout my life, I've read a lot of fantasy books, and I think it's super interesting and fascinating. Uh, swords actually have a special place in belly dancing. They're used as a belly dancing prop a lot. So thinking about balance of a weapon uh, was a straight carryover from that area of my life. Um, and I probably, I can't remember anymore, but I probably read some YA fantasy novel where an entirely normal young woman gets handed a sword and becomes extraordinary. You know uh, it's a trope, you know? And I was like, that could be me. <laughs> that could be me. See, I, I, I love that trope because it allows people like Adelheid, my partner, and yourself and many, many, many others to be like, that could be me, the hero it was never a, a lady fencer story until recently. Has actually, that's been an interest of mine too, continuing with fencing that kept me engaged is that, you know, working with Scott, he is very interested in making sure that modern fencing of the historical persuasion is inclusive, that everyone belongs as part of it, even if we would have traditionally been excluded from participation. Oh, no. That's that's kind of like the mission statement of the guild. Uh, exactly. It's basically, you go, ahead, you go ahead and be a hater-hater. If they're out there sowing discontent and they're foul people, you might not want them in your club. Exactly. Wh whoever they are, whoever they are, whatever their, their slants of ideology might be. And so I also started getting into, you know, because of that freedom, right? It gave me a lot of uh, permission to figure out things about being a lady fencer. And so I got into reading about uh, Victorian women mm -hmm. who got into fencing as a sport. And some of it's just, you know, like, oh, look at this amazing lady fencer. Wow. But also I got really interested in some of the... <laughs> really logistical issues like what do you do about boobs they get in the way they move around right they can be a problem how do i do this how did women in the past who fought with swords deal with this and so i actually spent an entire weekend on a research binge nice. learning about sports corsets in Victorian times. Oh my god. Yeah, they looked like torture devices. Usually they were almost cages of the traditional boning and then fabric tape to hold it all together. And uh, just, you know, some cups for the ladies. And that's about it. So they breathed, and that seems like an improvement. But uh, <laughs> Compared I can't to a imagine, regular corset, yeah. Yeah, your skin looks like a checkerboard at the end of the day, I'm sure. So every image we have from an old turn-of-the-century newspaper, I want you to, I now from now on, I'm going to visualize, like, every one of those lady fencers is a badass because they're wearing some uncomfortable crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, imagine that they are deeply physically uncomfortable and that there are pieces of... Uh, whale baleen or steel digging into their skin at about 50 different points all along their torso while they're jumping and running around is based on looking at examples that are in museums 
And it can be really difficult to find things because they're not always cataloged in a way that's helpful. Oh, well, there's a whole topic that we should probably talk about, maybe not this time, <clears throat> but the fact of these library catalogs. The, uh, what's the fantasy book where he talks about it? And it's really funny. Patrick Redifus? Oh, Patrick Rothfuss? Yes. Is it, um... Name of the Wind or something like that? Yeah. Okay, so there, uh, I'll cut all this bullshit out. But essentially, <laughs> essentially, or maybe I won't, but essentially the, the, the shtick is that there's this ancient library built on top of a library on top of a library sort of thing. And that's where people go to be awesome. So the archivists and the way things were cataloged would change every couple you know, 100 years when a new person thought they invented the next best thing. Like, oh, I've got Dewey Decimal and we're going to redo everything. And then it would never get, so there's sections of the library that have just become lost. He must have talked to an actual archivist when that's, he wrote that. That's what I was that thinking. Is exactly what my job is like, but with a shorter time frame. So, you know, what'll happen is our online catalog system will go out of business. The people who made it go out of business. So we have to get a new one. Well, crossing all of those records over from the old system to the new system, inevitably something goes wonky at least once and affects, you know, a couple dozen records. Do you spot it? Maybe. Can you fix it? Possibly not. It depends on the tools that exist. And then there are also changes that happen like descriptive standards. Uh, we have entire vocabularies out there for the kinds of words we sh should be using or quote unquote should oh. be using to describe things. And obviously some of the words that we use to describe things 50 years ago mm -hmm. are not the same words we would use now. Is it? Does it sound a little bourgeoisie or something? <laughs> Uh, or racist. We get a lot oh, of no. racist oh, as well. No. Really? Yeah. Really? Well, so, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, Negro was considered the most polite term you could use to refer to African Americans. Oh, my God. Obviously, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. changed. Yeah. And so changing our descriptive standards to keep up with the times is something we are constantly behind on. Oh, my goodness. So I couldn't even imagine. Navigating layers of systems and descriptions and tools that evolve but not fully is uh, why most librarians that you talk to have a master's degree, because it, it kind of does require a lot of work and learning and knowledge of your institution to help people navigate it so things. It sounds like you are... Just to see you're drinking coffee like me. What, what kind of coffee yep. are you drinking? Uh, you know, I got uh, some caribou coffee because I'm from Minnesota. So, you know, support company yep. represent. Yeah. Right. You know, and, the plug, uh, plug, plug. Yeah. And just some <laughs> milk, you know. I like, I like some cream in my coffee. Wow. I remember that when I was up there. Cream. Uh, okay. Oh, well. I'm not going <laughs> to talk too much mad trash about your you know, fouling of your coffee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> archivist is a super history nerd. Mm -hmm. You you happen to be a super history nerd that's into fencing. Mm -hmm. And that just happened because of 
what was the draw? You, you wanted swords and belly dancing, and you just, how did you happen upon Scott? Because you say you were looking, but what were you looking for? I think what ended up happening was there's a, a Facebook group of Twin Cities geeks that's several thousand people, and somebody posted something about, like, what's going on this weekend? Who's doing something cool? And Scott was like, I'm playing with swords in the park. And I thought, dang, that sounds fun. I would enjoy that. Mickey would enjoy that. We should go play with swords in the park. And I showed up, and he was cool, and so we stayed. That's there you go. And the rest, then, then the rest is history, right? Yep. So, what was your initial impressions of joining Scott's club? Being that he is a an interesting fellow, and I'm going to get him on here. And so I'm not going to I'm not going to spoil any the 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 listeners <laughs> by giving any no foreshadowing scott is a mystery wrapped in enigma so what was your initial impressions of um, this martian oh sorry we get to pause for a moment whoa that was the dog yeah that was the dog he oh, saw wow. some dogs outside very exciting stuff Murphy, oh. you're fine buddy y'all can't see him but i have a 70 pound poodle who thinks that he is like seven pounds. It's great. <laughs> I, I I enjoyed walking around with that dog. I'm not going to lie. I feel like a total badass whenever I walk him. I'm not going to lie. Well, it's like having like, it's just about the biggest dog you can get, you know. Uh, no, what's this other? There's there's these Great Danes and there's some other like wolf, Irish wolfhounds. Mm -hmm. you're, you're basically buying a pony at that point. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, Irish wolfhounds are actually uh, my absolute favorite dogs. I love them. I love them. They're so big and they could be so terrifying, but all they want to do is take a nap in front of a fireplace. Right. You know, uh, my friend Roberto's got a couple of those. Uh, they, and he, he puts pictures up every once in a while. They're, they are freaking awesome. Anyway. Um, all right. I think, I think we've calmed down so we can keep going back to our uh, topic at hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. This, again, you know, this is... The fencing grounds, and we're drinking coffee. We're talking about fencing stuff. Studying one master. I want to get back to what so it sounds like, what actually turned you on and kind of has kept you with this, aside from being in a cool club. That it's one master-centric with Joachim Meyer from the 16th century, and he's got multiple primary source materials for his system. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that, because that's like, that's... You know, Meyer is the gem of the German art of fencing, if you ask me. <laughs> I'm, I am biased, though. I am absolutely biased. I'm super biased as well. I think there's this perfect storm for me with Meyer, where it's in German, and it allows me to flex those skills and practice the language that I studied so intensely. It's also primary source material, which as an archivist is like crack. I love looking at historical documents and going straight to voices from the past to try to understand what's going on. When you read like a history book, right, or a modern manual about fencing with historical weapons, you are getting somebody else's layer of interpretation in between you and the past. and. That can be really helpful because that's a lot of stuff to make sense of all on your own. But when you go straight back to primary sources, you 
don't have that layer in between you. So you can decide for yourself what you think is the appropriate interpretation and what sort of analogies you want to make to your own modern life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just read somewhere that, oh man, I'm going to have to talk out of my ass. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but there was some, some discovery that there was um, one of the guys that was into positive psychology or something. They found that he actually absolutely cribbed out and excerpt this turn-of-the-century Germans philosophers like take on stoicism, like these X amount of points. And he mm -hmm. put that into his system. And it was just an article about this guy writing how exciting this is because that's now you know the thing that that guy read, and then now you can track this line of thought that created this whole school, if yeah. you will. That's exciting. That's what we're doing here. This is what the research nerds are doing. Yeah, so especially like intertextual studies where you're looking at what somebody was reading or thinking or was happening in their world at the time they were writing is super fascinating. And one of the things that's so helpful about Meyer is that he pretty explicitly talks about the fencing tradition that he is a part of several times throughout his works. It really helps you to place what he was doing within a, a longer tradition, but also the social context of the time, right? The fact that the book is printed uh, at a very early date for printing. Yeah. Um, well, they were they so, were booming. The uh, yeah. Stra Strasbourg Strasbourg was booming. Yes, which is a great town, by the way. I have gotten to go there. So the I studied abroad in Germany for a year in college, and the town I lived in in Germany is maybe an hour on the slow train away from Strasbourg. Oh man, you know I w darn. If I could turn back time for you, Sarah, I wish I could have got you into fencing a little bit earlier. I know, it's such a bummer. Instead, I enjoyed a beautiful cathedral and some crepes. Rats. <laughs> right, you know, I mean, that's that sounds fantastic, actually. That's awesome. Well, and one of the first projects I undertook for the guild was to use that master's degree I have in navigating all those different library systems and whatnot to try and make a list of every known copy of every Meyer text that we can get our hands on. Uh, that's been a really rewarding project. Oh no, it definitely we found, has. We found a colorized version where somebody had added color to the woodcuts. It's beautiful. I love looking at it. And we found some really great marginalia. So people had underlined things or added notes to the frontispiece or the inside covers of the book. And it's really, really cool. And I'm really excited to see what some of the other researchers do with that information now oh that we found it. Yeah, so you and I are going to have to have way more conversations. Whether we record them or not is entirely up to maybe maybe, maybe consensus. I want to add something to your, your manuscript um, search, you know, the, the correlating of Meyer. I want to scan the back of that print that I found of Meyer. And let's, I want to see, one of these has got to be missing, missing a page, or is it from a destroyed copy? Single leaf, you know, Meyer means there's 
there's a bunch of damn Meyer prints chopped up somewhere <laughs> in somebody's <laughs> cupboard. Well, it's entirely possible, too, that it was damaged beyond repair. And so a rare book dealer purchased it for disassembly and resale. Yeah, I'm, I'm still looking every day for an, another one of those Myers. <laughs> yeah. How do we journal this? How do we archive our research better? Yeah, research data management is a thing that that's what us librarian types call this sort of work is data management. It's hard. And then something that I want to write some guides for for folks, but mostly the, the basic rule of thumb is to organize your stuff way better than you think you need to at the beginning. If you don't, you will find out later you did not organize it with enough detail and it will be a lot of work to figure out what the heck you did six months ago. Yeah. Uh, so organize it heavily and back everything up. Keep keep offline copies on a thumb drive, put stuff up to the cloud, whatever you need to do, but make backups. That's the other big one. Well, you know what? Truer words have never been spoken. I got burned by my, my previous laptop crashing. I lost all kind of stuff. Um, even, please, please. Those were those were sagely words. <laughs> May the listener go forth and be prosper. <laughs> prosper. Yeah. Well, the um. Th so the thing I actually get paid to do at work as an archivist is as a digital archivist. So I work with things that come into our collections that are digital already, and we need to keep them for the next few hundred years. And like, how do you even do that with a thumb drive full of JPEGs or software, especially when a lot of that stuff is copyrighted? So that's that's what I get paid to do. But when it comes to this, there's also this element of personal digital archiving. And mostly, yeah, my guidance when I talk to people about that is like, back your shit up. Please, for the love of God, back, back it, up. it up. Just just make copies, put it in the cloud, make it so it does not delete. Exactly. All right, that is, again, those are sagely words. Those, honestly, we should have a Meyer Researcher t-shirt that probably says that somewhere on it. I think that that's a, <laughs> back your shit up. <laughs> yep. Because mm -hmm. um, if anything I want to do is promote fencing, historical fencing, but specifically Meyer. And if you're going to do Meyer, you might as well join the guild. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's all very, you know, community building in my mind. Absolutely. Uh, so what were we talking about before we took our little uh, break? Detour? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, fudge. <laughs> so I'll, like, rewind it or something. No, no. It'll just cut off and... Maybe that'll be the end of it. Welcome back to the fencing grounds. Sorry about that. We hit a rabbit hole. Um, I'm here with Sarah, and we've been talking about research, historical fencing, archiving, and a whole bunch of other history nerd and fencing-related stuff. Uh, but we lost track, so now we're back. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we don't know where we were. Uh, so deep was the rabbit hole. What, what recommendations? That's really what we're looking for. What can you tell the average... Huh, I don't know. We, there, is there an average 
behem a fencer, a historical fencer. So, you know, screw that. Don't even tell the average. Tell, tell me what you tell everybody else. <laughs> tell me what you tell everybody else. What I tell people, one of the things that makes fencing, especially studying Myers and Myers' system, what makes it so great is that you get experience history, that you're not just researching a text and you're not a LARPer or a reenactor or anything like that. You are a modern person doing deep experiential analysis of a text. And that's something that people in archeology span do all the time. They recreate stone tools and then use them for things to see what happens. And that's exactly what we're doing in HEMA. And that's really valuable and really interesting work. Well, that's what turns me on so much to this. I remember this is, I was like, this will never end. <laughs> like, it'll never end because the more mm -hmm. I know about the 16th century and how a citizen of Strasbourg in the 16th century would have behaved as a student of Meyer, the better I think I can understand his 1570 or if you're new to the art the 1570 someone who's educated this has expectations to already have some training you can read the 50 you know that third part of the 1570 or the lund you know then his we got his his notebook you know all all we we have that frog dna that informed him in the rashtak that's amazing and there's so many aspects of the that life and that world that you can explore. You know, there are metalworking people out there who are recreating weapons to historical specifications uh, using modern steel so it's safe, but historical dimensions and fencing with them to see what the advantages and disadvantages are. Um, I've recently gotten into weaving and historical weaving methods and spinning methods to think about textiles. What are the clothes like? What are, you know, leather objects like, you know, scabbards and belts and things like that. So there are so many aspects of the world. It matters. I always care about like, what's their, what, are they, what were they wearing on their feet? Yeah. What kind of traction did they have? What kind of steps were they actually doing on these old town, European, you know, mm -hmm. cobbled or dirt street. What were they wearing when they would have been fencing and yeah. effectual or in a duel outside of, you know, a tavern? Yeah, the surface that you're fencing on, the kinds of shoes you're wearing, how they're secured to your feet are all going to change how you move. And that change in your movement on a subconscious level changes how you fence. Changes where your balance point is. I know you'll know that mm -hmm. as a, a belly dancer, yep. if not by a martial artist. <laughs> yep. Well, and as someone who wears high heels, right? Those are oh all things bet, about footwear that change how you move through space. I certainly move far different when I'm wearing uh, sneakers than when I'm wearing army boots. Yep, exactly. So it's, it can only make sense when you're doing your historical, physical archaeology, this research into this martial art, that you pay attention to as much of the things that you can, because mm -hmm. that informs 
how you're going to interpret the art. And that's why I love Meyer, because we have all these sources. <laughs> exactly. And you don't have to, in doing this history, you don't have to deny that you're a modern person. You know, it doesn't have to be everything all the time. But thinking about what might be changing your results, you know, the fact that I am a woman changes how I interpret Meyer, because my body is just kind of different than my husband's. I'm a lot shorter. I have boobs. These things change what works for me and what doesn't. That provides helpful additional information for everybody. The more people we have included and the more kinds of things we're thinking about at any one time as a group, right? That somebody's thinking about footwear and somebody's off thinking about pants and somebody's thinking about underlining stuff in the text, right? When it all comes together, we have this really rich picture. Traditional publishing houses for historical works are very focused on traditional academic textual based history. And I don't think they would necessarily know what to do with work like ours yet. I think we can do some work in figuring out how to collect and present that work. But I also think that academia needs to catch up with us in some ways to be ready to use and hear what we know. Daniel, Daniel Jaquette's trying. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's what he's, that's his whole like mission, I think. Isn't that what he's doing? That sounds super oh. cool. Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. I love it. So. <laughs> <laughs> you can actually leave my ignorance in. There is nothing shameful about not what, knowing. What's Meyer say about that? Do you remember, Sarah? I don't. It says, don't be ashamed to learn. Mm -hmm. So there's this guy, and he smokes a little pipe. His name's Daniel Jaquette, a professor. He's, he travels the world in armor sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> gives presentations, and he's doing exhibitions and trying to add academic clout. He started a journal. Guy's kind of, he's pretty cool. So you should look into him, and I'll send you some links. Awesome. And, yeah, we'll cut that out. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's okay. Either, it, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's okay. I, don't be afraid to lie. I don't mind saying when I don't know. I really don't. That's one of the things that, you know, they taught us in library school uh, when you're doing reference with somebody. Tip one, don't be afraid to say you don't know. Tip two, learn how to Google and read things faster than the average person it will look like you knew all along and you're just demonstrating for them. Uh, <laughs> I love that. That's that's fantastic. You'd be shocked at how well that works and in what good stead that has held me. It's a very useful skill to have, especially around the workplace. Well, it's just, you know, just assume that Sarah knows and then she'll just show you how to get there. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's, that's the type of magic that I'm into. That's, that's uh, crafty. I like it. <laughs> So, databasing information, such as a, uh, how, how could I reorganize Meyer? Let's, let's talk, I want to talk about that maybe the next time. I'm looking at the time. We've been talking for about an hour. Let's see. We should get one more piece of something good. Because <laughs> <laughs> after that break, we've been just fucking about. <laughs> My back is just murdering me. Oh. 
I had to actually uh, steal. I got permission, but I stole my nice desk chair from work to bring home for work from home because <laughs> the chairs that we had here, every single one of them was messing up my back in a new and different way. So after four oh, months no of way. trying to rotate them through, all of them, like fucked up back things had kind of conglomerated into one giant problem so that's another reason i'm actually coming to you from my computer is because uh i get to sit in my really comfortable chair right right on so this is where this is where you should always do this conversation then (laughs) the next time i do this i'm gonna go up to my the studio it'll be warmer in there and i'll have a better microphone so We'll see, we'll see how this one this one turns out. Anyway, that's a bunch of administrative stuff. We talk about how awesome Meyer is. Check. Mm-hmm. We 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 talked about Lady Fencers. Check. We talked about the guilds. Kind of awesome, and we're gonna keep making improvements. Check. What else? What else do we want to talk about? I want to talk more about uh, that cultural document. Actually, we were talking about the if you see something, say something. Trying to change the culture of fencing clubs to one where if you see something that's not right, everyone says something. There's an expectation mm-hmm. that everyone has got everyone's back and best interest in mind. And how can we spread that around the world? What's, what's, what's your, uh, what's your how, how can we spread this? How can I make this go viral? <laughs> uh. You know, I think the biggest thing is just to remember that you don't know what's going on with somebody else. So when I went to my first Meyer Guild event, I was honestly terrified because I didn't know if I would be the only woman, if other people would be really aggressive with me because it would be terrible to lose to a lady. I didn't know what to expect. And so I was really uncomfortable. And if something had happened, I would not have been able to advocate for myself. So if you ever see something and you think that might make me uncomfortable, check in with that person and see how they're doing. It's so important to be compassionate with each other and take care of each other. That's the whole point of the Fry Vectors and the Guild and social structures actually historically speaking, right? The historical guilds. The old guilds, the fencing guilds. They're there to take care of each other. And it gets translated all the time as brotherhood, um, but that's because German, like English, traditionally defaults to the male for any group of people. You use the other good term, variety. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a it's a brotherhood of people who care about the same things. And because we care about the same things, we need to take care of each other. Yeah. Well I mean that's yes. Yes. So was that event one of the Meyer symposiums, or was this a different? That was the Meyer symposium, yeah. So, how, how'd that work out for you? And you were feeling that way, and then, and then what? Uh, I walked in, and some folks were making pizza in the kitchen. 
I just jumped in and started joining. I pretended I wasn't terrified at all. And everyone was so warm and welcoming and nice that I felt comfortable really, really quickly. Uh, and it was just absolutely, I knew I'd found my people. I'm a, I'm a cooperative hippie at heart. So any kind of place where I can uh, walk in and just start helping out in the kitchen, I know I'm going to fit in pretty good. Yeah. Well, th we have this, uh, for the listener that may not know, we have this uh, event called the Meyer Symposium. We've been doing it for a couple few years for the Guild. And it's just a community and camaraderie building event. Um, and also learning, obviously, mm -hmm. and fighting. But it's, it's about all of that. And we're <clears throat> I want to try to port that out to, you know, everywhere, too. Yeah, it's a great event. It really is. Well, I just wanted to make sure you didn't like how long it took you to feel uncomfortable. I would feel terrible that if you went to the Meyer Symposium and felt uncomfortable for more than a moment. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most welcoming-ass group you're ever going to meet. <laughs> it absolutely was. You don't need to worry about you, your, you or your people. It was amazing. Awesome. Well, and that's an, I like that you brought up that you found your people, your tribe. Mm -hmm. um, and at Sword People, you know, we, there's a lot of Venn diagram overlap with like kind of history nerds, and you got like your sword nerds, and you've got your, the knight kind of in shining armor nerds. And it's like this, I want to draw that out someday, this beautiful flower looking thing of a Venn diagram because we've we've got the market cornered on history nerds <laughs> I think absolutely but um, I think I've just run out of gas so um, I'm gonna go take some pain relievers and <sighs> try to be awesome that's that's my goal I'm gonna yeah, take care of yourself. That's, <laughs> that's all you can do. That's I'm only going to do what I can do. I can only do what I can do, and that's all that you can do, yep. too. But I am going to do some Meyer drills. I'm, I just am going to turn on the heater before I do them. So I want to talk with you again. If you found this uh, agreeable and fun, um, l let me know later. Don't, don't crush my spirits <laughs> now. No, it was a blast. It really was. <laughs> Could because I would love to talk about in more detail about research where I can just say, hey, we're going to talk about masculinity in the 16th century. We're going to talk about the rules uh, inside the feck houses, mm -hmm. you know, about the weapons on the floor, like stupid nerdy stuff. Okay. So if you're game for stupid nerdy stuff, oh boy, you found you found the right <laughs> fellows to talk with. You, I live for being a history nerd. This is, this is I do Meyer every day. <laughs> no, I would love that. I think that'd be really cool. Oh, man. All right, well, there we go. So I'm Chris Van Slambrock. You know, I'm, we're doing the fencing grounds. Bye, everyone. Thanks for having me. Well, I'll have you back. All right, take care. Bye.